ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. We've been here the past couple of weeks, and we've been looking at what it is to love like the servant. To love like the servant, and it's kind of an ironic, or I don't know what, maybe not ironic, but uh, an interesting name, because I, I, I was torn between titling this little series, Love Like the King, but it is, of course, the king who made himself a servant. And that's what we look at, his love for us. And kind of the impetus for this whole um, series has been this idea that our, our, two main, um, our two main goals in life, the two main acts of service that we do for God is to encourage other believers, help them be built up to grow, but also to introduce non-believers to Christ. And, and what we've seen uh, from this passage and, and others is that both of those, uh, a key element in, in accomplishing both of those is love for one another. That is, love in, within the Christian community. Love for fellow Christians. And while we are certainly commanded and should love your neighbor as yourself, that's anyone who comes into your path, and even love your enemies, there is a special place and a special purpose to love one another. And it's, it's been really encouraging for me as I've gone through this these past two weeks just to hear y your response to this. Um, you're excited about loving one another. You, you desperately desire to, to grow in love for one another. And that's been very encouraging to me uh, to see that. Because I, I know that you already love one another. Um, but, but as the Bible teaches, we can all grow in this. And it's just been very encouraging to see um, and hear your response to uh, these messages that God is, is working in you. And that um, he's giving you this desire to grow in this love. In order to, to, to learn how to love, we are, of course, looking at the, the, the best teacher of love, the one who loved most perfectly, and that is Jesus. There in uh, John 13, uh, verse 15, he said, I have given you example, an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. He says later, as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. And so we are learning from Christ what it is to love. What is the definition? What does it actually look like to love one another? So far, we've seen that love is genuine. It's seeking the best interest of the other person, not secretly trying to forward our own interests. Love is humble. That is, there is no status of my own and no status of another person that I should be unwilling to serve them because God bent down, humbled himself in service of the most lowly of sinners. We saw last week that love is unconditional, that Jesus did not wait for his disciples to earn his love, to deserve his love, and even when he knew their response would not be perfect, he still showed them love, and so should our love for one another be unconditional. We saw also that it was practical, that it doesn't have to be the big, flashy acts of love, but it can just be the nitty-gritty, the, the, the normal uh, patterns of life that we just practically come alongside each other and love each other, serve each other, encourage each other. And then finally, we saw last week that love is joyful, that we can do this knowing that, yes, we are loving this person, but ultimately we're, we're showing our love to God by loving this person. Blessed is the one who does this, Jesus said there in John 13. So, this week we, we come to uh, one more uh, aspect of what love should look like, and, and I would say that this is, just like the others, an absolutely necessary uh, component of what our love must, must consist of. Because if this aspect of, of love is absent, this will absolutely blow up in our faces. We will not grow as Christians the way we should. And I will tell you, non-Christians will be very, very unimpressed with our gospel. But on the other hand, if we, if we have this aspect, 
If it's present in our lives, then uh, the, the, really the sky's the limit of what God can do through our love. And so we've already talked about it, I already have told you what it is, and this aspect is the patience of love. Patience uh, is not uh, something different than love. I kind of want to explain that. Patience is an aspect of love. You, you don't be patient with someone in order to love them. To, to love them is to be patient with them. And so as we think about love for one another within the fellowship of Christians, yes, we have been saved, but we have not yet been perfected. Therefore, we will all let one another down from time to time. I mean, truly, if you have any kind of extended relationship with someone, they will let you down. And the converse is true as well. You will let them down. Therefore, if we are to love one another, if we are to build up the body of Christ by loving one another, if we are to commend the, the gospel of Christ by loving one another, we must be patient in our love. There, there must be a love that contains patience in it. I kind of want to tell you even what this patience contains uh, by, by the way I'm talking about it today. This could just be uh, patience as others grow in their faith, right? We all begin as, as infants in the faith, and there's nothing wrong with that. This, this, it's just how we're all born physically as infants, and so it is uh, in the Christian life we are born again as infants, and so we have to be patient as people grow in their faith, but that can be difficult. <laughs> we, we want them to act right now, to do right now. And so within patience... It contains this idea of, of simply bearing with them, okay? I don't really like what they're doing. Okay, maybe their intentions are good, but it's not really the way that it should be. That, that's something we have to be patient with. But I want to tell you how far, how big I'm going with patience. Patience also means when a Christian even knowingly sins against you, we are patient with them in that we forgive them and give them another try, right? Jesus, or uh, Peter rather, said, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven times? That's a lot of times. What does Jesus say? Seventy-seven times. And that, of course, is just a big number. Even that number seven is a perfection. And anyways, um, this is something that we must do. Patience is, is sometimes just bearing with the, the, the flaws. Sometimes it's forgiving the sins of one another. And again, Without this type of patience, our love will fail, and it will be ineffective. It will not accomplish the purpose for which God has for this love. So let's read together in John 13. Um, you can follow along with me. I'm going to do verses 1 through 17, and then I will skip down to 36 to 38. But we'll begin in verse 1. <clears throat> now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed, bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, skipping down to verse 36. I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bible. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. That is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, I'm asking today in this service that you would help us to feel the weight of what's going on here. Help us to feel the weight of your holiness, your perfection, your glory, and then to see our own sin, our own failures, our own weakness alongside it. And God, I I believe until we see those things, we will not understand what a magnificent thing Jesus is teaching them. How unbelievable it is that you, God, would continue to love us. That you would love us into salvation, but then from there love us into glory and all the messiness in between. God, break through any hardness we have in our hearts that would keep us from patiently loving one another as we see your patient love for us. This I pray in your son's holy name. Amen. So we're going to look at the fact that love is patient. An aspect of love is that it is so patient, and it must be. The only person for whom it does not require us patience to love is God. God God is always perfect in his timing, although it may not be our timing. He is always perfect in his timing. We don't ever have to wait for God to grow in holiness or to act rightly. He is always perfect, but it is not so with us. I've broken up this sermon into um, three three points, and and they're kind of just different ways of looking at this, because I think before we apply... Uh, that the fact that we should love one another patiently, we need to see first how God loves us patiently. And that will be kind of the first two points. We'll first look at the theological patience of love. And that'll be the first point. I'll go ahead and put that up on the screen for you. I thought I would. Someone will. The theological patience of love. And that is how God patiently loves us. I want us to see that theologically here from John 13. Then I want us to see the practical patience of love. That is, how Jesus, God in the flesh, practically worked out this patience. You'll see how that's different once we get into it. And then after we've seen that, then we will look at the applicable patience of God. So let's get first uh, to the theological patience of love. Theology um, is simply the study of God. In case you're wondering, the study of God. So when I talk about the theological patience of love, we're simply going to study how God patiently loves us, patiently loves sinners, and patiently loves even those who are saved but not yet perfected. I see this in John 13 um, because this foot washing, I hope you understand, is, is not quite the point. The foot washing was an act, a practical act of love. We saw that last week. It was practical. They needed their feet washed, and Jesus humbled himself and genuinely loved them by washing their feet. And this was amazing because of how normal it was that this foot washing occurred. 
But there was something going on behind that foot washing, right? The, the foot washing is a picture, but we know that the real thing that it is a picture of is always greater. And so it is here in John 13. It is a picture of something far greater. And, and what I want you to notice is that Jesus teaches his disciples about two different categories of what we'll call cleansing. I'm trying not to use the word washing and bathing because that's kind of the, the different words, uh, at least in the ESV, that it uses. He uses this, this term washing and he uses this word bathed. And so the, these are two categories of cleansing that must occur in every believer's life. Both are necessary, but they are different. Let me show you that from verses 6 through 11. <clears throat> it says there, He, Jesus, came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet only, but also my hands and head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, Peter, you are clean, but not every one of you. And then John adds that little comment, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Okay, so what I want to show you is that in verse 10, there's that word bathed. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash. In the Greek, those are two different words. You have the word for bathed, luo, and then you have the word washed, which is nipto. That doesn't really matter, but I'm just telling you, it is different. They are two different words. It's not just a, a repetition and the translators have chosen two different words. They are truly two different words in the Greek. And so what I see is two different categories. And we even see this in the way that it's used there. Jesus says there again in verse 10, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean i'm going to uh kind of give this the, the the title or whatever of the cleansing of salvation again i still don't have control on this remote for some reason i do have it uh, in the sides the cleansing of salvation there we go thank you uh the th this is the idea that that he peter has been bathed. This is a, a past event that has already occurred, and he, he has been bathed, and from that bathing, he is clean, and you are clean, he says. And it's interesting that he says, not every one of you. This is how I'm getting to where we know for sure this is talking about salvation. Not every one of you. And then John adds, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. So who was to betray him? Come on, I just got done with VBS. The kids yell at me. Judas, there you go. Judas was to betray him. Did Judas have the cleansing, the bathing of salvation? No, he did not. His feet were washed. This, 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 this little feet washing did happen to him. This nipto, again in the Greek, but he did not have the, the luo, the bathing of salvation. Peter and the other apostles, the other disciples, did have that. So let me tell you, as we think about this, this symbolism of bathing, which, by the way, if, you are, if there are any grammar nerds out there, hear this. Luo there for bathe, the one who has bathed, does not need to wash except for feet, but is already clean. That word bathed is perfective. It is perfect tense. Leluomai is actually what it is in the Greek. What perfect tense means is this, okay? It is a one-time event. You have been bathed, but the perfect part means it's not just past tense. It is a past thing that happened, but it has a present, abiding, everlasting effect. 
Okay, another example of this that is probably the most important one in the Bible is Jesus on the cross when he says, it is finished. That's not just that it was done, but then I'll have to do it again later. No, Jesus died on the cross once and for all time. We're talking about 20 billion years from now, there will be no need for Jesus to die on that cross again or to wash sins again because he already did it. In the same way, friends, when you have been bathed, leluomai, this perfect tense, it is done. You are completely clean, Jesus says there at the end of, or middle of verse 10. This is beautiful, okay? This, this is, if you are, are saved, if you are going to spend eternity with God in heaven, the only way that that is possible is that you have been bathed by the blood of Christ, there is no other way. There is no other sacrifice for sins that truly washes us as white as snow. I love the way the old hymn uh, puts it. I had this going through my head the whole time I was writing my sermon. This is from Are You Washed in the Blood? It says, Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? This is a washing that Judas lacked. Friends, please hear me. This, is, this, is, this can be great news or terrible news. Judas walked, served alongside, did life with Jesus and, and disciples, and yet was not bathed. He did not repent of his sin and truly cling to Christ for his salvation and his life. But, Peter and the others had trusted in him, <clears throat> and they were completely clean. That is, their sins were put as far away from the presence of God as the east is from the west, and so it is with you. If you have trusted in Christ, you are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You are completely clean. But then we notice here, <clears throat> Jesus says, um, let's see what verse is that, verse, the end of verse 8, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, nipto, this is not luo, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So there is another type of cleansing that is necessary for the believer, but that isn't the same as this cleansing of salvation, this bathing. So what is this talking about? What, he says there, uh, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Then he says further in uh, verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet. So there is a, uh, a, another washing, another cleansing that must continually occur. This is what, what I'm calling, and I have up there, the cleansing of sanctification. That is, we have been washed, cleansed, new garments put on, perfectly spotless white garments in the eyes of the Father. But we are still walking in this world. We are not yet perfected. And what happens is, is we, we step in the mud. We, we get the muck and mire of this world of temptation, of sin on our feet, as it were. This is figuratively speaking. We are cleansed, but then our, our feet get dirty. And this is a cleansing, a washing that we must continually come back to Jesus for over and over again. This is sanctification. This is uh, 1 John 1, 8 and 9 puts it this way. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the idea that, that we, we come to Jesus and say, I got dirty again. I, I got my feet dirty. I'm, I'm still clean. I'm still saved, but I, I got my feet dirty. I need to confess that sin to you. I, 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 was, I was harsh with my wife. I, I, I lied, on, on, lied to my boss. I cheated on this test. I, I, I lusted. I was greedy. I was proud. And so I need you to, to wash my feet. And he is 
as Bershon says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I think we need to let this settle in, though, for a moment. The God of the universe who created us is, is worthy of all glory and all honor, that he is all satisfying, he is most valuable. We all rebelled against him. Each and every one of us have turned to our own way, but he has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And that is this salvation. We, we see what Jesus has done, and we trust in him. We are, we are bathed in that moment. And what, what happens in that bathing, by the way, is, is, is this regeneration. We get a new heart, a new mind that has new desires, new values. We become children of God, fellow heirs of the kingdom with Christ. All the benefits of being children of God, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, ours in that moment, able to worship the all-satisfying God of the universe. This is unbelievable because of this bathing. But what do we do? We turn and then we walk through the muck and the mire. We, we, we willfully choose to sin. And it's kind of a confusing thing because, you know, Paul kind of puts it this way in, in Romans 7. I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I do want to do. If you've truly been saved, you're regenerated, you, you have a new desire. I want to obey God. I want to serve God. And, and this is a beautiful thing. But then there's this other thing warring against us that is our flesh that we still carry around. That is this world that is tempting us, saying, no, value these things, value these things, not God. That is Satan saying, no, there's something better for you out here rather than what God has. And we, we do it. Our true desire is to, to, to esteem, obey God, and, but we still walk in the muck. Which is worse? I, I hate to even ask this question because I don't have an answer. Which is worse, an unsaved, unregenerate person with an old heart, old mind, walking in sin, who hasn't tasted the glory of God, the forgiveness of God, the love of God, or a saved person walking in sin? Child of God, fellow heir with Christ, spiritual blessings, and then we still walk in it. Which is worse? I don't know. I kind of leave that as an open-ended question, but... I kind of lean towards it's worse for the saved person to, to go right back into the mire and to be deceived. But what does God do to us? This is all we got, by the way. And I love uh, Romans 7 kind of ends with that. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I should do. Romans 8.1. If you guys know Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's this, there's this ray of hope that God still does not condemn us, even though we are saved, redeemed, the most high, great thing that could ever happen to us, and then we turn and walk in sin. He still does not cast us off. We just sang that song, He will hold me fast. It said, my, my heart is often cold. I could not hold myself. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. We are so prone to wonder, and it is God who has to continually reel us back in. I wish I could say that, that when God changed my heart that I immediately became sinless and uh, obedient and perfectly loving and everything else, but that is not the case, and that's not the case for anyone. But what, what we see here in this picture is that Christ this is just, uh, just we got a picture of this with sin in the background now. Christ takes off his robe, ties a towel around his waist, pours water into a basin, and washes our dirty feet again, even though we've been bathed. This is unbelievable patience of God. It does not fail. It does not give up. This is unbelievable and this is the, the theological patience of God. This is how God treats Christians. Now, I, I think that the human mind kind of works in multiple ways. I think we learn through facts, but I think we also learn through 
experiences and, and pictures and stories and, you know, uh, more, more experiential things like that. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus. Not only the theological, ethereal, you know, uh, patience of God's love, but we see the practical patience of God's love uh, here in John 13. So this is number two, the practical patience of love. Remember that Jesus really was a historical, is a historical person. About 2,000 years ago, incarnate, a little town called Bethlehem. But that he really is the image of the invisible God. That's Colossians 1.15. That he really is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. That's Hebrews 1.3. Jesus said in John 12, 45, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And if that's too confusing, he said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So what Jesus is saying is, the, the way that I treat you, the, my, my character, my attributes, if, if you've seen me, you've seen all the Godhead. This is how God is. And so it comes to the patience, the patient love of God, when Jesus treats his disciples this way, you can know that this is the way the whole Godhead treats every one of his disciples. And so we have this, this story, this picture of how Jesus is so patient with his disciples. I have a few examples here. First, Jesus was patient with the immaturity of his disciples. We talked about this a couple times in the past uh, couple weeks. But in Luke 22, we learn that just before this foot washing, that the disciples had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. They're in the presence of God. The image of the invisible God is right there. And they're like, I am better than you. No, no, I'm better than you. This wasn't the first or only time the disciples had done this, by the way. They'd made these proud power plays against one another. But here's what Jesus does. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to get a different team, a different set of disciples. He simply points out their error. He does. He points out their error in Luke 22. You can look it up. He reminds them of the truth, and then he continues to love them. I can just imagine the embarrassment, their, their faces burning with redness when Jesus calls them out on their, their pride and their sin. Of Guys, I'm right here. <laughs> Quit fighting about which of you is the greatest. This is the disciples, guys, the, the ones who walked and talked and served alongside Jesus. They still had their immaturity. Uh, more specifically in John 13, we see that Jesus was patient with Peter's lack of understanding and even lack of submission. Okay, we see, you can kind of follow along with me through verses 6 through 10. It says, Jesus, he, sorry, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? So first we're seeing Peter simply doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. And so verse 7, Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Okay, so this is a reasonable mistake, right? You just didn't understand what Jesus is doing. But then we see in verse 8, Peter outright rebels against Jesus' authority. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. He just said that to God. You, you, you have intended to do this thing to me. You've just told me that I don't understand, but rather than just believing you and submitting to you, nope, you shall never wash my feet. This is no longer a mere lack of understanding. This is a lack of submission to the God of the universe. This is pride. No, I know better than you, Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to this? Rather than throwing down his towel... And saying, you know what, Peter? You've tried me for the last time. You know what, Peter? You're right. You're not worthy of me washing your feet. You know what, Peter? 
Judas is about to go do something really stupid. Why don't you go help him? Instead of that, this is what Jesus says. Middle of verse 8. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon's kind of freaked out by that. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, the one who didn't understand and the one who is now not submitting to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, Peter, are clean. I mean, let, let that settle in for just a moment. Peter doesn't understand. Not surprising from Scripture that Peter didn't understand what's going on. I don't think any of them did, obviously, but he's the only one who made a thing of it. And then even when Jesus just says, I, I got to do this, you shall never wash my feet. He, he makes it plain. Look, you, you really need this. You don't need your whole body washed again. That's already done, right? Leluomai, it's, it's, it's done. You're clean. But you need this, this foot washing, this, this cleansing of sanctification. <clears throat> and I, I love how Jesus ends that. It's kind of the middle of the sentence. And you are clean. Because Jesus just said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And that clearly enticed fear and anxiety into Peter's heart. Where, where can we turn, Peter had said earlier. Where, where do we turn if we don't go with you? And he's saying, you will have no share with me if I don't do this. And, but Jesus just says here, you are clean. You're with me. You're mine. He is being so incredibly patient with Peter. I hate to keep bashing on Peter, but we've got to keep doing it. The third thing I see is Jesus was patient with Peter's lack of faith and confidence. You can go down to verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but afterward, or sorry, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? I can just feel the grief in that. Will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Peter, the man who has watched Jesus heal the sick, make the blind to see, the lame to walk, cast out demons, calm the storm, is going to deny Jesus when the going gets tough. So again, how could have Jesus responded? Look, I don't need any fair weather friends, Peter. Why don't you just go back to catching fish? Look at what Jesus said there, though. Uh, look again at verse 36. You, you could miss it. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Hmm. Jesus is, is not looking at this momentary failure that's going to happen that very night. He's looking past that to the person Peter will become, in fact, the person that Jesus is making Peter into. And by the way, if you go to John 14, if you want to turn the page or, or whatever right there, John 14, look at the next thing John records him as saying. Right after saying, you're going to deny me three times tonight, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I just, I see Jesus putting the salve of, of, of his truth and of his salvation on Peter. You're going to deny me, but you're going to be with me. That, that where I am, you may be also Again, you, you could look at the, the parallel in Luke 22. This is a, a parallel passage. It will end with Jesus saying, uh, you'll, you'll deny me. So you'll see that here in a moment. So this is just before he says, you're going to deny me. Luke 22, this is uh, 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. 
That is, that you would fall away, that you would no longer be saved, that you would not spend eternity with him. But, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, deny three times that you know me. I mean, there's just a couple things there. Jesus, knowing that Peter is going to sin against him by denying him, says, I've prayed to the Father that he would hold you. To, to use the words from that song, that he would hold you fast. You, your faith would fail, Peter. But God, the Father, is going to hold you because I have prayed for that to happen. And then he says this, and when, not if, when you have turned again, that is when you've, you know, uh, come, come back to me, strengthen your brothers. This is actually Jesus appointing him to a task, and we'll see later, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, I can't go into that. But Jesus not only is patient with him, not only forgives him, but he, he appoints him, he, he, he puts him higher in rank, and Peter will become the, the leader of the Jerusalem church. This guy who, I mean, it, it, it's hard. Again, I feel bad talking about Peter these ways because it's so embarrassing. This is the man who will write these two books of the Bible, first and second Peter, and who will be the leader of the Jerusalem church. Does that give hope to any of you? It does me. Because I'll tell you, I have failed Jesus so many times. And I have been at, at the bottom thinking, God could no longer use me. I'd be amazed if God will ever even love me again. But we see from this practical example, this is the way God treats disciples, treats his children. The love never stops. Right? That was verse 1. He loved them to the end. That is the uttermost he speaks so tenderly. I mean, that's what breaks my heart, as he speaks so tenderly, so kindly, so hope-giving to Peter, even though he's, he's failing in such big ways. So I am thankful for the patient, of, patient love of God, aren't you? Is anyone thankful that God is patient with them today? Until we get there, this next point doesn't even matter. But let's, let's, let's turn to it. Number three. The applicable patience of love. I don't know why I bother clicking this thing. Look at uh, verses 12 through 15, if you would, and then we'll talk about it for just a moment. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now, wait a second. Is Jesus there instituting the, 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 the church ceremony of feet washing? Do we, do we have a feet washing ceremony? We do baptism. We do communion. Why don't we wash one another's feet? Was Jesus saying that they should literally wash one another's feet? No. What he's saying is, in the same way that I am patient with you, in the same way that I continue to love you, even though you continue to walk and, and get, get muddy in this life, get dirty with sin in this life, you also ought to be patient with one another and wash one another's feet. If we, if we, if we look behind the picture of the feet washing, we see the reality that we will all fail one another, just like we fail God and Christ. And so we will have to walk in patience towards one another. Th this, is, this is so important. The God of the universe, perfect in holiness perfectly righteous, perfectly just, never has made a single mistake, never has sinned, never has lied, once 
ever in eternity past, nor ever will in eternity future. That God is continually patient with you. He shows his love first by, by sending his son in our sins, Romans 5.8. But he continues to show that love that he continues to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And remember, don't think of the sins you commit against God as those times that you raise your fist at God. No, you won't tell me. No, every single sin you commit is ultimately against God. That is, every time you, you're unkind to your spouse, every time you lie, cheat, greed, lust, it doesn't matter. All of it is a sin against God, and yet He forgives us. Listen to Colossians 3, 12-14. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive this is beautiful this is saying that the power that we have to bear with to, to be patient with to forgive one another comes from the fact that God has been bearing with us and will continue to bear with us and has forgiven us so much Let's, let's think about this logically, and then, and then we'll, we'll close. If God, the perfect, holy, just, righteous God, says, you're continually sinning against me, but I'm going to continually be patient with you, I'm going to continually forgive you and, and help you turn the right way, that, that is, in God's courtroom, what he has deemed just. What does it say about us if we say, nope, I'm not going to be patient, I'm not going to forgive Ultimately, what that's saying is the way that they have sinned against me or, or hurt me in some way is more important than the way they have sinned against God. Because God was able to forgive this. God is able to be patient and continue in love. But I'm actually more valuable, so I can't let it go. I'm more valuable than God. And though in God's court, he has deemed it just and right to continue forgiving and being patient, in my court, which is higher, I, I don't deem that good. Do you see that? It is absolute pride and folly to say, I am more important than God and my court is higher than God. Therefore, I will not be patient in my love and I will not forgive others when they have sinned against me. But so it is. The most valuable, I mean, seriously, we, we are not even a drop in the bucket compared to the weight of God's glory. And so it should actually be easy. I know practically it's hard in the moment, but it should be at least mentally easy for us to choose to forbear, to forgive, to be patient. Because God has forgiven us so much. Not a day goes by that I don't need the foot washing of Jesus. So if we are going to love one another as Christ has loved us, we got to wash one another's feet. It's dirty work, but we got to be patient with one another. we got to bear with one another as they grow and even forgive when they sin against us. And if we do that, we will be built up in love. Speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4 says, the body builds itself up in love by this, they will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we show this love to one another, it can be a big thing. It can be a big thing, a, a world-changing thing for God's glory, the good of others, and our deep joy. Let's bow in prayer. Father God, these are truths too great for words. That you would save us. Not because we are so lovely, but to forgive our unloveliness and put the loveliness of Christ on us as a robe. What a wondrous truth. But you don't stop there, Lord. You do not require perfection, though that must be our pursuit, though we must continually come back to be cleansed of unrighteousness. You don't cast us off, Lord in our immaturity, in our failures, and even 
in our wanderings and sins. Lord, thank you. I, w- I wouldn't be a Christian today. I would have no hope of heaven if it weren't for your patient love. And so, God, knowing that, help us to love one another. To say, the God of the universe, perfect, holy, glorious, is the most valuable, is able to continue forgiving and being patient, so I can too. Let us be freed by seeing your patient love, Lord. God, you've got to do this in our lives. God, if there are old grudges in this room, remove those today, Lord. Give soft hearts, humble hearts that are, that are willing to apologize, that are willing to forgive, that are willing to just actively show love and honor to those who have hurt us. God, would you do that miracle for the building up of your body and for those who don't know you to see the truth of the gospel operative in our lives? This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please use this time to respond. Stand and join me.